Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. This week's episode is about Jonathan Glazer's 2004 film, Birth. This is one of the defining films of my life. I feel a very deep and powerful emotional connection to it, and that's what this episode will be about. It will be deeply personal, it will be raw, it will be... It will be an exploration of the way that a film can completely change you. How a film can explain you to yourself to some extent. A film that I so deeply identify with that I almost can't even talk about it or put it into words. This film means so much to me. I saw it when I was 15 years old. So I saw it over a decade ago, and it's just one of the most important films of my life, and I had to talk about it. I have no choice but to talk about this film, and I specifically talk about Nicole Kidman's performance in it, and how she plays a character that I identify with more than any other character in cinema, and this film just means so much to me and so I hope that you'll stick around that you'll listen to the full episode and that you will get something out of it I put my heart into this I put my soul into this I put everything into this episode it's hard for me to share it it's it's hard to be exposed and vulnerable but that's how I wanted this episode to be this is just me This is all of me put into this episode. So I hope you'll listen. There are spoilers. I talk about everything in the film. Everything. So I go in depth about this film. And so I definitely hope that you'll listen and that you'll get something out of it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. This podcast is listener supported and I intend to keep it that way. So I want to thank all those patrons for helping me do this podcast and supporting the work that I do. If financial support is not an option, and I totally understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you leave a review on iTunes, I'll definitely read it on the podcast. I won't give your name publicly, but I will read the review. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films. Or you can send me a message or engage with me on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Head and Films. And you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode.
Before I focus solely on the film and give you my thoughts and feelings about it, I wanted to talk about a few general things and a few things that are related to the film. But more than anything, I want to try to articulate why this film is so powerful in my own life. I want to try to describe the time that it came into my life, what it meant to me to see it, why it has haunted me, why it is one of the defining films of my entire life. And I think that's a that's a big thing to say. I don't think we have a lot of those films in our lives that come to define us that are so intense and overwhelming and the memories we have and the connection that we feel to it. And so this episode is really me grappling with this film and me coming to terms with it and trying to describe why it has such a hold over me. Now, first, this film has a rating on Rotten Tomatoes of only 39%. And this shocked me when I was doing a little bit of research about the film, but I didn't want to do too much research because I want to give my raw, unvarnished opinions and thoughts. I don't really like to be influenced by other people when I'm talking about a film that means this much to me as birth does. And I just couldn't help but come across the Rotten Tomatoes score and I was flabbergasted by it. People don't get this film. People don't like this film. It should not be at 40%. That is absolutely criminal. And I'm going to make it my personal mission in life to rehabilitate the image of this film, to change the way people see it, and hopefully to get more people to see it through my podcast. I don't have a huge platform, but I'm going to use what platform I have to shout from the rooftops that this is a film that you need to see. Now, there will be spoilers in this episode, so just be warned, I'm going to talk in-depth about this film. It's available to rent and stream online. I watched it through my DVD that I still have. This film came out in 2004. I probably got the DVD in 2005 or 2006, and I've had it ever since, so I went back and watched it that way. But I absolutely think this is a masterpiece. I think this is a haunting film. And I think there is something about it. There is this mystery about it that lingers in you. I mean, I know it has for me. And so I think that rating right there shows you that critics absolutely serve an important function in our society. If you're thinking about paying $10 to go see a film in a theater, then absolutely go to Rotten Tomatoes, read the reviews, get a sense of what people think. But just keep in mind that the what the critics have to say is not the be-all, end-all. And that I think I I don't want someone to think for me. I don't want someone to tell me what to think of a film. And unfortunately, reviews can sometimes taint you against a film that you would otherwise be very interested in watching. And I'm a big advocate, and I've said it multiple times on the podcast, to figure out what you think about a film, if it interests you. Am I going to go see the latest Star Wars film? Am I ever going to watch Star Wars Probably not, you know. Um, I am not interested in those films. 
but some people are, you know, and and some people want to read the reviews and they want to engage with it and they're already, you know, they already know that they're going to go see it and do all of that. Um, but I'm not interested in it. It's not a film that I'm ever going to go see, so I don't really care what the reviews say about it. But what I'm trying to say is if there's a trailer that you come across or a description of a film and it piques your interest, but then you're on Twitter or you're on Rotten Tomatoes and you're reading all these negative reviews, I think that would be an instance in which if the curiosity is already there about the film, then explore it and look into it. I absolutely love the process of watching and discovering films. I absolutely love it. I use all kinds of different sites, streaming sites, and I will go and I will look for films that are like these little foreign films that nobody's heard of, um, and I'll just watch them. And I love it. And I have found some really great films that way by just exploring. Go to Netflix and go to the international tab and just look around and see what interests you. I think that's really exciting about cinema. You know, you put a lot more time into something like a book. You might, I I try to be a bit more careful about what I read because I know that this is going to be something that I'm putting maybe eight hours, 10 hours into with a film you know, it's like an hour and a half or two hours, you know, and it can just, I just think it's a really fun thing to do to just explore and see what's out there. And I think when it comes to a streaming service like Netflix or Hulu, that for me is different when it comes to reviews. I think reviews matter more when it comes to, oh my God, I'm going to be spending $10 at the local theater and I don't want to waste my money. And so I absolutely get that. But with if you're already subscribed to Netflix, what do you have to lose by just starting the film and seeing what happens and seeing where it takes you? And Netflix has all kinds of little gems that you can discover. So, um... You know, the critics are important. They can give us historical context. They can give us lots of different perspectives. There's a big discussion going on and has been going on for years now about the need for diversity in film, in film reviews, in film critics, that Rotten Tomatoes tends to be dominated by white men, obviously, and that can shape how we look at cinema. So I don't want you to think that I'm against people who review films or I'm against critics. Not at all. I myself write reviews of films at times. And I'm reviewing films through this podcast. So I'm giving my opinion as a working class woman. As a woman that deals with mental illness. As a woman that lives in a rural area in the South. You know, I'm giving you my perspective from certain experiences that I've had. And so I'm trying to create a space for myself within the, within the cinema world. But I really urge you that even if you see a 39% like I did for birth, um, <laughs> to still explore it and to still give a film a chance if it interests you, obviously. If you're not interested in it and you're never going to watch it like I am with like the superhero films, yeah, fine, whatever. I'm not saying you need to watch films that you don't want to watch. But just give different films a chance. I know I rambled a bit about that. But I just can't believe this film got a 39%. It shocks me. The critics didn't like it. Um, I think it's it's a film that is too... I would describe the film, even though Jonathan Glazer is British, 
I would describe the film, since it is set in New York and it is set in America, I would call it American Art House. I would put it within that, that yes, this is a film with Nicole Kidman and very mainstream Hollywood stars like Lauren Bacall, but it's an art house film. It feels much more European to me. It feels much more mysterious and ambiguous than what you usually get in mainstream American films. So I would categorize it and describe it as American art house, really. And um, so something that I wanted to talk about for a minute is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And as I've said many times on the podcast, I don't consider myself a critic. I wouldn't even call myself a reviewer. I don't know. I see myself more as a guide where I'm trying to take your hand and guide you and and lead you to different films. But more than that, I'm trying to explain to you how I got to a film and why a certain film has stayed with me, how it's impacted my life, how it intertwines with my own life. Films almost become these vines that wrap themselves around you, and you cannot cut them away. And um, I, I just had a, I had a realization recently that I can't be objective about films. That's why I don't conceptualize myself as a critic. I do think of a critic as someone who can be somewhat objective, who is able to maybe um, eliminate the emotion from a film or the sentimentality of a film, that they can watch something and they can try to... Um, suppress maybe those more personal feelings whereas for me the richness of cinema and the reason why I talk about it and write about it and engage with it the way I do is because I want to bring all of that to the surface I want to give you all of that I want to give you the personal and the emotional and um you know so many people have talked about the films that I've talked about on this podcast Tons of people have talked about Cleo from 5 to 7 and La Jete and The Passion of Joan of Arc and The Piano Teacher and Late Spring and, um, and Fish Tank and Moonlight. So many people, hundreds and thousands of people have talked and written about those films. And there's nothing particularly unique about me. But I was thinking recently how what what makes me different is that I'm not just giving you the film, not just talking about the film and and what is it about and what's the plot and who are the characters and what happens and what are the camera angles and, and all of this. I'm really giving you my heart and my soul. And some of you have taken that and you feel that and you connect to that and that's really beautiful for me. Because that's what I'm doing. I'm talking about films, but in a way, it's like films are just a vehicle to talk about myself. That sort of sounds arrogant or sort of self-obsessed a little bit. But I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about me. That's what I'm giving you. And I just can't help but do that. I can't engage with cinema in any other way. Um... And I just can't be objective about them. And I think that maybe there are not good and bad films. I mean, I guess there are objectively bad films. You know, there are just really terrible films out there. But I I don't know sometimes. Are there bad films? Yeah, but that bad film could actually mean something to someone. That film could have changed somebody's life and you don't know it. 
So I don't know anymore if there are good and bad films. There, there are problematic films, obviously. There are films with, you know, prejudice in them and, and racism and sexism. And I would never excuse that. But, um, but I think really what films are about is it's, it's about when you watch them. It's about who you are when you watch them. It's about, did you watch that film when you were 15 years old after getting your heart broken or were you 17 years old after your father died like I was when I saw certain films and it hit you in a certain way and it affected you that's what films have become for me is that they are so chained to the moment at which I watched them and where I was in my life and who I was and and the things that were going on and the way I felt. And there are certain films where I have such intense experiences of seeing them. And birth is one of them. I cannot be objective about this film. I totally disagree with, with every negative review of it. I totally disagree with the 39% Rotten Tomato score. Which to me just shows you how ridiculous it's become. That people rely on one website with a certain set of reviews to to um determine the value of a film like i just hate that i really do film for me is so intimate and it's so personal and it will never be anything else but that it can never be anything else for me i cannot get this film out of my system it absolutely sucks you in it seduces you it's a film that's almost above reality or outside of reality beyond reality like I watched the DVD right I put the DVD into my laptop and immediately as the film started because it has a very powerful beginning um with uh and I haven't even given you a summary of the film I just assume that you're going to know what it's about but I'll tell you in a minute it just has it has very powerful music by the composer Alexander Desplat, who's one of my favorite film composers. And his score for this film, and it's on Spotify, at least in the United States, is probably my favorite film score. I have listened to it obsessively. If any of you use Last.fm, Last.fm, it's a really great website, and you it it tracks what you listen to. It they call it Scrabbles. Um, I don't know any of you are aware of this site. I've been using it for years, probably since 2010 or 2011. So ever since then, I have, um, I can go back to different years and I can go back to an album and look at when I listen to it, how many times I've listened to the songs. It, it really tracks your activity and your history, um, if you listen to things through streaming sites like Spotify, like I do, and this is like one of my top albums on Last FM, they'll it'll track and it'll tell you who your top artists are, who your top albums are of all time, and this is like in my top five or six, I think. That's how intense this album is for me. I listen to it all the time. This this music has stayed with me for years through through everything. You know, through everything I've been through from loss and grief and college and and struggle and, and everything, this album has been there. 
and this film has been part of me. I don't watch it a lot. I, I don't, this film defines me in so many ways. It is, it is one of the most defining films of my life, and yet I wouldn't say I revisit it often. This was the first time I had watched it in years. It's not on any, like, um, subscription website. You would have to rent it on your own, I think. So it's not on Netflix. It's not on Hulu. It's not on Filmstruck. Um, I don't watch it every year. Like, some films I'll watch annually. I'll do my annual uh, The Double Life of Veronique, because I always watch that by Krzysztof Koslowski, because it's one of my favorite films. But birth, I stay away from it because it's so emotionally charged for me. There's like an electricity about it. And um, that's what I have such a hard time communicating to you is why this film means so much to me. You know, I'm just this, I'm just this young woman in her bedroom holding a microphone trying to talk about something that there are no words for that when this film started to play and I saw it and I hadn't seen it for years I wonder if I've seen it since my father died in 2006 I don't know I can't tell you but I know I saw the film before he died I know he was alive when I first saw it because it came out in 2004 two years before he died this film is so defining because it's about grief it is about a woman destroyed by grief. Our woman is Anna, played by Nicole Kidman. And her husband died. And it's been 10 years. 10 years have passed since his death. And a child comes to her and says that he is her dead husband. That her dead husband is reincarnated through this 10-year-old boy. And she has to decide if she believes it. And she has to decide how does he know certain things about our relationship and that's the part of the film that is the big mystery and it is revealed and a lot of people describe this as sort of a psychologically suspenseful film and that is the thing that propels it forward I think and the suspense of the film is how does this 10 year old boy know about their relationship how does he know certain things about their life and I'll get into all that once I'm talking about the film. But it's about how she becomes wrapped up in this fantasy. Wrapped up in this impossible thing that her dead husband has been reincarnated through somebody. The film takes us into the world of this woman and how she starts to believe it and how she can't let go of her dead husband she gets completely lost in this narrative that that he has been reincarnated she's willing to believe it it's really about how i think grief can completely um delude us how it can change us it can it can put us almost in a delirious state where we would believe things that if we were not grieving that if we were in our normal rational you know uh state we would never believe these things and i relate to that because of the death of my father in 2006 and i was 16 years old and i've talked about it throughout the podcast um for those of you who are longtime listeners but that is why this film is what it is to me 
that my father's death completely destroyed me, just like it, the death of her husband has destroyed her. And she is so obsessed with her dead husband and so in love with him still a decade later and it's been 12 years since my own father's death so it's interesting to watch it in that context too what i i i have trouble um finding the words for this um it's just about how grief can completely deform you in so many ways and make you into someone that you don't even recognize and um can we and i think the central question for me of this film and the one that i might try to keep coming back to throughout the review i don't know is can we ever let the dead go can we ever let the dead go can we ever be free of them when it's someone that you had a very profound, deep connection to? And I think this film also asks us, how do, how do you deal with loss really? How do you cope with it? Do you ever cope with it? Can you cope with it? Because some people are resilient. Some people lose a father at the age of 16 and they go on to be completely productive people. And some people are me, who are completely shattered and devastated, who are crawling through life, who have had thoughts of suicide, who have had depression and anxiety that, it, that was made worse by this traumatic loss, a person who is traumatized that's who I am. And um, I see so much of myself in Anna. Even though she lost a husband and I lost a father. I have never identified so deeply with a character in a film or even a book. The way that I identify with Anna. That is why she haunts me. It's because I see so much of myself in her. Because so many times... I've wanted the dead to come back to life. I've wished they would come back to life. I've even watched medium shows. I have. And I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in things like that. But in the years since my father's death, I have searched for some kind of solace and peace. And I cannot find it. Because I'm not religious and I don't believe these things. But there were times when I've watched shows about mediums. And I, I don't believe it. I wouldn't say I believe it. But I suspend that disbelief. I think I want to believe it for a little while. I wish I could believe it. And I think that's what happens with Anna in this film. Is that she wants to believe. She wants to believe that her dead husband has come back. And I'll give you another memory about this film. I knew before I even saw this film that it was going to be one of the defining films of my life. I knew it. When it came out in 2004, I was 15. I was 15 years old. I was in high school. And I still remember an art class I was taking 
at the time. It's the only art class I've ever taken because I can't draw and I'm not visually artistic. But I think I needed to get some kind of elective and so I chose art class. And there was a girl in there and we were friends. She was like the only person in the class that I really knew. I wouldn't say we were best buds or anything or best friends. But we talked a lot. Like sometimes we got in trouble for talking so much in class. That was actually the only time I can remember ever getting in trouble for talking in class. Because if any of you have listened to other episodes, you know that when I was really young, I was mute almost. That I have terrible social anxiety that I've always had trouble speaking to people and in front of people. That's been a defining thing in my life since I was in kindergarten, since I was five or six. I've always had terrible social anxiety. But me and this girl just had a lot in common. Like we just, I don't know, I just really liked talking to her. And we had a good rapport with each other. And she kind of got my sense of humor, which is a really hard thing to find because... I have sort of a dry sense of humor. I'm like really sarcastic, but I can also be really silly at times. And she kind of got my sense of humor. And I remember we got in trouble for talking so much. But I saw the trailer for this film, Birth. And I was so taken by it. And now this is in 2004. My father's alive. I haven't gone through any kind of grief, any kind of traumatic loss at that time. So I'm not quite sure what drew me to the film. Just like I'm not quite sure what drew me to Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath writes about her dead father in her poetry. And it's only after my father died that I realized it was almost like a prophecy. It's almost like Daddy and, you know, Electra um, on Azalea Path and uh, the different poems about her father. It's almost like they were prophecies or sheep in fog. That's my favorite Plath poem and one of the most haunting for me and probably my favorite poem ever, Sheep in Fog, even though it's not her most well-known one. But um, it's, it's almost like her poems were so prophetic for my own life and the loss that I would go through. And I discovered Plath probably around the same time, 15 or 16 years old. And... um. And she's been a big comfort to me through the years, her poetry and her work. But, um, so it's almost like this film in its exploration of grief, it's almost like I didn't know it at the time, but that's what would happen to me, that somebody I loved would die and I would be destroyed by it, just like Anna is in this film and I wouldn't know how to cope with it. I mean, I think she goes through the motions, but I think underneath and inside of her, something is completely torn apart. Something has collapsed and been obliterated. And um, But I remember when I saw the trailer, I was just so enchanted by it. And I told my friend in art class, I still remember us sitting at the table and I was like, you know, I saw this trailer for this film called Birth and it's got Nicole Kidman in it and... I was like, we should see that. Or I just told her about it because I thought it might interest her. And I think I started to like obsessively talk about this film. And I was like so fascinated by it. And I hadn't even seen it yet. It was completely already a part of me. That's why I say I can't get it out of my system. It's completely um, melded to my memories. 
And um, I just, that's a vivid memory for me telling that girl in art how, in art class about, um, about this film. And I was like, and 2004 was also the year that I took a film appreciation course in high school. And I found an old diary recently. And for a while, I had no idea what year I took the class. I just didn't know. And then I realized that I took it in 2004. I was able to find it in an old diary of mine because I've kept a diary since I was a teenager, since I was um, probably 13. And I had noted it in the diary that in 2004 I had taken. And that film appreciation class was life-changing for me. And it was when I realized that film could be art, that film could absolutely be an art form that moved you and, and changed you and... We watched all kinds of stuff in there from Casablanca to Singing in the Rain. We watched some really great films, lots of Hitchcock, some like it hot. I love that class. So 2004 is this really interesting year for me where I take that film appreciation class and then I learn about birth and I hadn't even seen it yet and it already haunted me and it was already part of me. And um, so when I started watching this film, you know, in 2018, I'm 28, almost 29 years old. And this thing from my past, this thing from my childhood comes back to me. And I started to cry when the music started playing. And, and I just realized what an impact this film had on me. And how I, I just can't even put it into words for you. I wish I could. And so this episode is going to, it's going to be there's going to be failure. There's going to be what ellipsis, you know, there's going to be like silences and gaps and spaces where I can't put the words there. I can't find them. I can't give them to you because this film is just too deeply personal for me. This is probably the most important film I will ever talk about on this podcast. That if you want to understand me, if you want to get me, and my life, and who I am, and how I feel, and, and my emotions. This is the film. And it's interesting, I don't put it like in my top 10 list. Like I made a top 5, and I've made a top 10 list of the films that are my favorite, and I haven't even put birth in it. And it's almost like it's radioactive in some way. It's like I can't touch it. I can't even interact with it, because it's so almost dangerous it's so emotionally dangerous and devastating for me. So for me to even be doing this episode, for me to even talk about this film, is really intense. But this is the film. This is the film that is my soul. That defines me, that explains me, that is part of me, that is in my blood system and in my cells and my marrow. There is no getting it out. There is no extracting this film from my body and my soul. It is that important to me. And another person may watch it and not get it at all. Because they weren't me. They weren't 15-year-old Caitlin watching this film. You know, they weren't. But I was, and I carry that. I carry her with me, and I carry those memories with me. And, um... I want to share a quote um, by Joan Didion that I think really talks about grief. And I would ask you to keep this quote in mind 
um, throughout the episode. And I'll, I have a quote that I want to use at the end as well that I think really sums up things really well. But few people, I think, have written about grief the way Joan Didion has. And she's so well known for her other journalistic writing and her other nonfiction writing. But it was later in life that she got a great deal of fame from her grief memoirs. First, The Year of Magical Thinking, which was about the death of her husband. And then Blue Nights, about the death of her daughter. And these deaths happened in very close succession to each other. And... The Year of Magical Thinking is a really important book for me. And it it talks about grief in a way that is very powerful for me and visceral and, and resonant. And the magical thinking is when Didion, after her husband died, she kept waiting for him to come back. That for a time, she believed he was still alive or that he would appear again. And, you know, I think this relates a lot to the character of Anna in birth because I think she is also somebody who is almost waiting for her husband to return and Jonathan Glazer says as much in an interview that he did with Charlie Rose unfortunately um, the terrible um, and disreputable now Charlie Rose Um, but I did watch an interview that he did with him and Nicole Kidman and he says something like that, that this character was waiting for something like this to happen, for this boy to appear and say that he's her husband. But I think to a certain extent, maybe for 10 years, she's been living in the magical thinking. She's been waiting and hoping that her dead husband will return. And he returns, apparently, through this little boy. But I do think that um, the film has so much to say about grief and what grief can do to us and how it can change us and so I did want to share this quote before I went further and went deeper into the film and I would ask you to sort of keep keep it in mind or just to think more about it and to read the year of magical thinking if you're someone going through grief or struggling with it quote grief turns out to be a place none of us know until we reach it We anticipate, we know, that someone close to us could die. But we do not look beyond the few days or weeks that immediately follow such an imagined death. We misconstrue the nature of even those few days or weeks. We might expect if the death is sudden to feel shock. We do not expect this shock to be obliterative, dislocating to both body and mind. We might expect that we will be prostrate, inconsolable, crazy with loss. We do not expect to be literally crazy, cool customers who believe their husband is about to return and need his shoes, unquote. And I would ask you to keep that quote in mind as I talk about Anna, who I think is a woman who has been driven insane by loss, that a part of her has in a way gone mad from the sudden death of her husband and how even 10 years later she's made no progress with it she's um she's still in it and still struggling with it and is unable to to really deal with the the reality and the fact that he is dead so we'll take a short break 
little bit of music will play and then I'll go very very deep into this film and tell you what I feel about it what I think about it and why it matters so much to me and I'll go very deep into Nicole Kidman's performance as Anna and why for me I think this is one of her greatest performances it might for me it's my favorite by her and um, she has so many other great performances like in the hours and all that but birth is really the defining one for me so stay tuned feels impossible to talk about birth. I've put it off and put it off for years. I started the podcast in 2016. So I've been going for over a year now. I've done over 65 episodes at this point with this episode. And I've talked about so many films that I love from The Double Life of Veronique to The Passion of Joan of Arc, to so many different films. But this singular film, this defining film of my life, I've almost been terrified to talk about it. Because I thought, well, there's no way I can do it justice. There's no way I can talk about this film. But I think sometimes the things that we cannot talk about, the things that we... um, can't find the words for or the things that we have to turn away from sometimes those are the things we have to go into you know those are the things that um, we have to confront somehow and even if you fail at it there's something that you gain from the process of it so will this episode be perfect will I say everything that I want to say will you know, days later, will I think about, oh, I didn't talk about that, or I didn't articulate that properly. Absolutely. And I'm kind of terrified even doing this episode, but I feel like I need to do it, that putting it off and putting it off is not useful. Here is this film that I feel like is languishing in obscurity, that is not receiving the praise and attention that it deserves. And I want to give it that because that's what I'm doing through these episodes. It's like I'm loving these films. I'm giving love to them. Um, I'm trying to um, make people aware of them and put them into um, people's consciousness and just say, I'm, I'm sort of pointing them out and say, hey, watch this film and maybe some of you will watch it and get something out of it. Jonathan Glazer is a really interesting person, and I would say he's one of the more interesting auteurs or directors working. He started out really in music videos. That's what he did for a long time. He's also done a lot of commercials. So that was sort of his background for many years. He did music videos for Massive Attack, Blur, Radiohead. I would say his most famous video would be Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai. And I tell you, just talking about that, that video brings back so many memories of me being a kid in the 1990s. I was born in 1989, but the 1990s are a very like vivid time in my life that particular decade. 
it was really the happiest time I would say of my life my childhood and I so remember summers and after school putting MTV on and watching the videos and I definitely saw Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai and that was in 1996 so it's crazy to think that Jonathan Glazer directed that video that was a wild video the floor was moving and, and all of that that was a really big one he directed Karma Police by Radiohead. He did their video. He also did a video for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. So he was very entrenched in the music video world. And I love music videos from the 1990s. I think you can tell that a lot of directors and a lot of them were like art have gone on to become like art house directors or really respected directors started in music videos or made music videos and there is just something about that decade that to me the videos that were made are like art they're like these films and I don't think they get talked about enough or maybe I'm just nostalgic for the 1990s and maybe some of you who are listening get what I'm saying but there's something very artistic about those uh, videos for me personally so it's so interesting to think that Jonathan Glazer was directing some of those and he did quite a few commercials as well I think he's really talented and I think his work is daring I think it's risky I think birth is very risky but I think that there is an emotional depth to his work especially to birth and under the skin is very haunting too that had Scarlett Johansson in it he's only done three films which is hard to believe since 2000 so within the space of, of 18 years he's only done three films it's shocking to me how little we have of of his cinematic output but birth is by far my favorite of the three he has sexy beast in 2000 birth in 2004 and under the skin in 2013 under the skin is very haunting and it's, it's sort of like a sci-fi film in some ways i don't know if i totally understood it but it was daring but birth for me obviously because of my personal connection to it is my favorite i look forward to whatever he chooses to do next i don't know what kind of projects he's involved in right now or or anything like that i i hope to god he's working on something because I think we desperately need work like his um, but I just want to talk a minute about his past and how he really was more in music videos but his well thinking about it now it occurs to me that birth the music in the film is so central I don't know if I can think of another film just off the top of my head where the music is so integral to the mood and the atmosphere and I was thinking in terms of this film I have an episode about Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura which is a film that has haunted me for years and it's one of my absolute favorites and I said I think in my episode about it that La Ventura is more than a film it's it's a mood it's an atmosphere and I would say the same about birth that it is like a mood and an atmosphere and, and a feeling and there's something very intangible about this film 
but the music is so central to it and so actually it's not shocking that he was involved in music videos I guess you could argue a little bit that birth is almost like an extended almost two-hour music video to a certain extent because Alexander Desplat's score is just so essential to it. I don't know if it would have the same feeling, the same emotion without that music. And it is, like I said, it's my favorite score. Desplat is one of my favorite composers. And I love many of his scores. I love the score that he did for Girl with a Pearl Earring. Nobody talks about that film, but I love that film. Don't judge me. It's a really good film. <laughs> I just have a connection to it because I really loved the book that it's based on. And I love historical fiction, especially historical fiction about women. So I love Desplat. I love his work. And the, the fusion of the film and the music really creates something special, I think. So now that I think about it, it's no surprise that he started in music videos or that he did a lot of music videos. I think he understands the texture of music. I think he understands the mood and the emotion that music can create in a film. So Birth begins with this really haunting and stunning opening. And of course, there's Desplat's music pounding along. And it's of Sean. Anna's husband and he's in the park he's in a park um and he's jogging and it's snowing and um it's this gorgeous scene and this is also an example of how this film has really become encoded in my DNA almost because every time winter comes and if there is some snow I mean I live in the in the south the deep south we don't get a lot of snow down here and if we do it's like pandemonium we don't like snow I lived for a few months in Rhode Island from 2015 to 2016 I went in October and I left in March <laughs> so I was there during the winter and that was one of the most brutal things I've ever experienced as a country girl as a southern girl um, from North Carolina going up and living in Rhode Island for a few months was brutal if you live in the Northeast and you've always lived in the Northeast and you don't know anything different or anything else you've got to know that it, it's not normal <laughs> what y'all go through in terms of the winter time especially when you're coming from the south it's just not something that a lot of people in the south deal with um, and when you go into it, it's such a rude awakening and it's, it was a shock to my system personally and it was grueling. It was really brutal for me to get through that winter. But I will say that there is a beauty about the snow. If you don't have to shovel it, if you don't have to drive out in it, if you don't have to deal with it in that way. And this film just captures, it captures the beauty of winter and, um, the trees are bare and uh, and knotted and gnarled and the snow is coming down really beautiful beautifully and Sean is jogging in it and he goes under this bridge in the park and he start he collapses and this is where he dies and um those bare winter trees they actually remind me of a Sylvia Plath poetry collection that I own I found it at the Goodwill. I got so lucky sometimes with the Goodwill when I was younger. And I still have this book. 
It's on my bookcase right now, and I'm looking at it. And it's called Winter Trees. And I don't know if a lot of people know about this collection that she released. Because, you know, everybody talks about Ariel or the Colossus or the collected poems, right? But there was this book. It was, I mean, I think it came out after she died. I Don't quote me on it. Um, it was, and it's a collection of some of her poems. And I think there is some other stuff in there. And, but it's called Winter Trees. And it may have come out after she died. And the cover is just this snowy landscape with bare trees on um, on the cover. That's the whole cover are these, the limbs and the knotted and gnarled, um, trees. And so every time I see that opening of birth, I think of the Sylvia Plath, um, cover as well of winter trees. And I definitely thought about it when I rewatched the film this time. And when Sean died, um, in the snow, as the snow is falling so beautifully, um, I thought about James Joyce's, short story some call it a novella called the dead and i will this is one of my favorite short stories of all time because it's so beautiful and the writing is so beautiful i haven't read a lot of james joyce i certainly need to read more of him but i did want to share the last paragraph of the dead in this review because i just want to and i love bringing literature into my podcast because as some of you know that's how i started i went to college and i studied literature i have um a bachelor of arts degree in literature and women's and gender studies and so my background is not film at all or or cinematic in any way. My background is in literature and I've always thought of myself as a literary person, as a writer. So it's sort of, you know, it's very odd for me to even have a podcast about films. But um but I have to feed the literary part of myself. So I do want to read this beautiful last paragraph of James Joyce's The Dead because I think it fits perfectly with this scene. Quote, a few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly, as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe, and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Unquote. Oh my God. <laughs> That's like literature, right? That is like the rhythms of that paragraph and the beauty of that sentence, and especially that last sentence. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe, and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Ugh, 
perhaps the greatest last line in literary history i i don't know i i think so i think it's just gorgeous and when i was rewatching the film this time i thought of that story i thought of it's for me that last paragraph is about how the snow falls no matter what that nature is almost this indifferent witness to our human mortal lives that whether you know whether you're living or you're dead the snow falls either way it falls on the living bodies and then it falls on the graveyards you know and it falls no matter what the snow continues the snow is immortal the snow is always there while our lives melt away our lives vanish you know it's that reminder of the permanence that outlives us the permanence that we're denied as human beings um, that nature goes on that everything goes on without us even after we are gone so um so I thought it was just a fitting passage to put with this scene, you know, because Sean is, has, de has died. His life is over. And after he dies, the scene goes to a baby being born. And so I think in this film, there's always a very compelling balance between life and death, between sort of the pain of grief and loss, but the the necessity of life continuing right but the problem is is that Anna our main character played by Nicole Kidman doesn't really know how to continue and she doesn't know how to live without the man that she loves and that she's lost and it was interesting in that Charlie Rose interview that I talked about earlier Nicole and Jonathan really talk about this film as a love story that that what Anna feels for Sean after he dies is love that that's why she can't get over it is because she loved this man so much um and i think that love sort of imprisons her in her grief i think that often our grief it's it's a product of love i mean are you really going to grieve the person that treated you terribly are you going to grieve the person that you care nothing about no you're going to grieve deeply grieve the people that you loved and adored and that mean and that meant the most to you and so i think grief is always intensified by love that you can't love this person anymore because they're gone they're dead so what do you do i think you feel like well all you have is your grief that maybe the grief is the only proof of your love and that's not how you should see it just because people are not frozen in their grief doesn't mean they didn't love the person that they've lost. But maybe it means that they're able to process it differently or to deal with it differently. Whereas somebody like me or Anna, it's like the grief is intensified by the love. I adored my father. I've talked about it countless times on, on the podcast. I absolutely adored him. I still can't comprehend that he's dead. I still can't accept that he is no longer here. I can't make sense of it. My body, my mind, I can't comprehend it and I can't process it. 12 years on and I still struggle with it deeply. So 10 years pass from the time that Sean dies and Anna... I think this is really fitting the the way we're introduced to Anna and she's at a graveyard she's at Sean's grave and um 
and she's standing there and and Nicole Kidman has a fascinating look in this film and it's unlike any look that I think she's ever had perhaps beyond uh, perhaps except for the hours where she plays Virginia Woolf and I think the hours is one of her greatest performances as well and she rightfully won the Academy Award for it and I just happen to have a poster of the hours up on my wall right now that I'm looking at because <laughs> I love the hours I think I read the book first. I want to say I did read the book when I was a teenager, probably around the same age that I watched Birth or saw it, or around those years, you know, 15, 16. I read The Hours. It was the first time I think I was exposed to Virginia Woolf, because in that book it has her suicide letter, and um, I was completely enchanted by this woman and obsessed with this woman like who is this who is Virginia Woolf and um I had to learn more about her and I've since then I've read many of her books Mrs. Dalloway to the lighthouse the waves the waves is my favorite and Mrs. Dalloway is my favorite too but I still have so many more to read and I'm trying to read her diaries right now but it's taking me forever I haven't even gotten through volume one <laughs> Things just keep coming up and distracting me, but I have a poster of The Hours up on my wall because that is such an important film to me. It's one that I definitely would love to talk about in the future. I mean, you've got Julianne Moore, Meryl Streep, and Nicole Kidman. What more do you need? And then you've got a score by Philip Glass. And the score for The Hours, just like Alexander Desplat's score for Birth, is like central to my life. I listen to it all the time. Because I love listening to film scores. So I think um, Nicole had a very unique look in the hours. She had the prosthetic nose and all of that. But I think with birth, she completely transforms herself. You almost don't even know it's Nicole Kidman. I mean, I guess you do. But she has like a Mia Farrow haircut. Like Mia Farrow from Rosemary's Baby. It's chopped off. It's very short. She looks very elegant in this film. She just... I mean, Nicole Kidman has always been a beautiful woman. She will always be beautiful. She was just in Big Little Lies, which I have an episode about that. I have I talk about violence against women and um, sexual violence and different things in Big Little Lies and The Keepers and Broadchurch. I sort of put those three shows together and did an episode about them. So you can look for that episode if you're interested. But she has sort of had a resurgence recently, Nicole Kidman. She went through, I would say she went through a few years where she was not getting the best projects. She's always been a favorite actress of mine. I've always admired Nicole and loved the work that she's done. Whether it's Cold Mountain or The Hours or this film, The Birth. And... um so for but for a few years I don't think she was really getting great projects and then recently with Big Little Lies things have gotten much better for her I think and she's back on top and back showing how powerful she is as an actress and the thing that I love about Nicole especially in this role but in a lot of her roles is her vulnerability she knows how to convey a sense of vulnerability a sense of fragility you know, of women who are very fragile inside, even though they might be strong on the outside. Because I would say as Wolf, you know, I thought the I thought the character of Virginia Wolf in the hours was very 
intellectual and strong and and all of that but there was a fragility about her just like there is with Anna in this film so I couldn't I can't talk about birth without commenting on Nicole's look you know it's just she's just stunning in this film and I love I actually love that they chopped her hair off I love that it's brown um I love that she really transformed herself because what that haircut does and you know I I I worry sometimes that I talk too much about the way an actress looks or the what she's wearing or her hair. Like sometimes I bring that up in my reviews. When I did my episode on Claude Chabrol's La Ceremonie, which I adore that film, and I've got some Chabrol lined up for the weekend soon. So I'm going to be watching some more Claude Chabrol. I don't know if I'll do any further episodes about him, but his work really interests me it's I sort of like those suspenseful films a little bit those psychologically suspenseful films but um in that I talked about Sandrine Bonaire and her bangs how her bangs were completely chopped off almost and I sort of worried I was like "Ooh, was I being sort of gendered there or sexist to talk about how women look but I do think in a performance that the way a character dresses, the way they do their hair, I don't think those are superficial things. I think that those choices matter. And I think in this film in particular, it's a very important choice that's made. Because with the hair gone, there's a focus on the face. And so for me, it, it created the, it, it created or it turned Nicole's face into a canvas. And she put so many colors on that canvas and brought so much um, life and texture to it with her performance. It's, you're completely focused on her face throughout the film. And she conveys so much through it in a lot of close-ups. There's a ton of close-ups in this film. And I love close-ups. I've said that in other episodes. Like I love seeing an actress at her, at her height. I just love seeing it. I love seeing a great performance. I love witnessing a great performance. I just do. And and for me, Nicole Kidman in Birth is like a master class. And I've talked about a few other films before this one where I'm focusing more on the actress's performances. I talked about Jenna Rollins in A Woman Under the Influence. I talked about Isabel Hubert in The Piano Teacher. These are performances that are just mind-blowing to me, and they're like master classes of what is possible, what an actress can do. And so with that short hair, we're just completely focused on Nicole's face. And um, so we see her at the graveyard, and I think immediately we realize this is a woman who is just profoundly shattered by the death of her husband and who happens to be waiting for her in the car at the graveyard and that's her fiance her boyfriend Joseph and he's a pretty important character in the film and um and he's in the car waiting for her and he's someone who's been very patient with Anna you know with Anna's grief and really in a lot of ways they're living with a ghost it's almost like Rebecca. Remember Daphne? If any of you have read Daphne du Maurier's book, Rebecca, which is about this younger woman, I think, who, who meets a man and he has a dead wife and the dead wife is always haunting them. It's like the dead wife is always present in some way and is always there. And, and um, it's this brilliant masterpiece of a book. Um, I love Daphne du Maurier. 
and um, Hitchcock did a really good adaptation of the book. But now that I'm thinking about it, this is almost like Rebecca in a way, but with with it being a man instead of a woman, that Sean is Rebecca, that he is always haunting the film. He's always haunting Anna and Joseph. He's always present in some way because Anna can't, she can't let it go. She can't deal with it. And, but Joseph is pretty, um, he's pretty patient and understanding about it. And, um, so, and after this, there's an engagement party. A lot of things are set up at that engagement party that will have huge consequences throughout the film. We see, um, Clara, who is Anne Hache, Anne Hache's character, and um, she's there with her husband, Clifford. I think Clifford was Sean's brother, I want to say. But uh, Clara is an important character because she shows up to Anna and Joseph's engagement party. And she's going to give a, a gift to Anna. But at the last minute, she runs outside and buries this gift and we don't know what she's buried. We don't know why she's buried it in the ground. And um, she goes and she buys something else to replace it. And um, this is a big part of the film. This is like the suspense of the film. Is why is she burying this? What is going on? Um, and as I said, there will be spoilers throughout the film. I really wish... I could watch the film the first time every time. Like that's the thing. Once you know what's in that package, you can never see the film in the same way again. You just can't. The spell is broken. The spell is shattered because the first time you watch the film, and that's why I would encourage people to watch it first before they listen to my review. Because when I talk about a film, I just want to talk about it. I want to go into everything about it. But I was thinking as I rewatched it this time that I really wish I could watch it not knowing. Because once it's revealed that what is it, what's in that box, it changes everything. And it just does, you know. But that's also partly of what propels the film is that mystery. Because a boy sees Clara burying that package and that boy is also named Sean and he's played by Cameron Bright um who is a really gives a great performance in this film I mean he's only 10 years old I think Glazer said he was nine when they were filming it and he is like this haunting child like uh, he's like the most haunting little boy he's so creepy looking in this film but also very beautiful um he's a striking he's a very striking young man and just has this look about him that I think really haunts you to some extent but um he sees Clara burying that and I'm not sure I mean I guess I should just go ahead and give away what was in the box because but what was in the box was love letters that Anna had sent to Sean and that he did not open and he left them unopened. 
he was having an affair with Clara. And to prove his love to Clara, he gave her these unopened letters from Anna. And she was going to give those letters to Anna at the engagement party. I guess to... I guess to stick it to her to some way or to let her know about the affair. I guess she wanted Anna to know. I guess she figured, you know, a decade has passed. She deserves to know. And, um, but that's not what happens as, as I'll talk about later, but in that box are the love letters. And so, And so the young Sean, the little boy who happens to be named Sean, he finds those letters and he obviously reads them. And in those letters, Anna has poured out her heart and soul. And she's talked about details about her life and details about what her and Sean have done and all of that. And he starts his game, I guess you could say. But what's interesting also is that it's not always clear if young Sean, and I'm going to, to just to differentiate between the characters, the little boy, I'm just going to call him young Sean, uh, just to make it clear that I'm talking about the little boy. There, there seems to be the implication in the film that young Sean believes that he is the dead Sean, that he is the dead husband, that, that this little boy himself has some kind of, um, Well, he's 10. So when you're 10, the line between reality and fantasy is already blurred. And so he enters into this fantasy, really, that he is Sean reincarnated. That he is Anna's dead husband. And I think that he does believe it. I think that he doesn't know what to believe. I think he puts himself in a state where he's not sure. You know, and so later on, Lauren Bacall plays... um, plays Anna's mother and her name is Eleanor and she has a birthday and so at Eleanor's birthday party um first of all we find out that the wedding's going to be in May so that's interesting that's important and um and and young Sean shows up at that birthday party he just walks in they live in this really gorgeous apartment that these are rich people you know that this is like a very lush film like the set decorations are gorgeous. The clothing is gorgeous. There's certainly a glamour to it. it you know, they go to the opera and the symphony. And, and um, that's why I say it's like American art house. It feels European in a way. That's about this, these very elite, privileged, white, upper echelon people who go to the symphony and, and wear beautiful clothes and look beautiful and, they have, you know, violin players in their apartment and they live in a really beautiful apartment um, in New York City. And you can tell that these are, these people have money. And something that I didn't like and that I obviously noticed now that I'm older, I probably didn't pay as much attention to when I was a teenager. There is a um, a black woman in the film and she plays basically their maid, their housekeeper. And that's really the only um the only person of color that shows up in the film for the most part um 
which was unfortunate to me that they would have a black maid like that didn't sit right with me and it made me uncomfortable but that is the film so um it's it's obviously about these very privileged white people um so I did want to mention that because it gave me pause and it made me uneasy. There is a class dimension in the film too, though, because young Sean's family is working class and they live in sort of a rundown area um, of the city. And, um, and while, you know, Anna and, and Joseph live in this really um, luxurious uh, apartment, so there's certainly like a class difference too that when young Sean shows up to this apartment, I think he's also sort of seduced by the wealth that he is witnessing, the wealth that he's walking into. And I think he likes being there. I think he likes being in the apartment and being around these people that have money and wealth. And it's like this world that he never had any kind of entrance into and any kind of connection to and now that when he's pretending to be Sean he has some kind of access to it and so he shows up at the birthday and that's when he tells Anna that he is Sean and of course what makes it more compelling is that his actual name is Sean and Anna finds that out Sean's young Sean's father works in the building he works as a tutor he he's tutoring somebody that lives in the apartment building so he's there a lot she doesn't believe it at first she resists believing it um she but she is uneasy about it and it made me think you know what would any of us do if we were confronted with this would we believe it would we want to believe it and the thing about anna is that she's open to it she is open to believing it at first she laughs her and her sister laugh about it after the, she escorts sean out and you know says you know you're ridiculous this is crazy um you're not my dead husband but i think something starts to happen inside of her it has to it has to um and I have to talk about this scene. Like, it's the stupidest thing for me to talk about. But there's a scene after this where she goes down to the lobby. And she's going to leave the apartment. And Joseph goes to get the car for her. And she goes and she sits on a bench in the lobby. And she's putting her scarf on. And she puts her scarf on in a way that I had never seen anybody put a scarf on. Where she sort of wrapped it. Where she sort of wrapped it around her neck. And I just... I had never seen anybody put a scarf on like that. And ever since I've seen that, that's how I put a scarf on. On the rare occasions when it gets really cold or it snows, that's how I put a scarf on is the way that Anna does in that scene. It just captured me, something about it. Like, I think some part of me just wants to be Nicole Kidman in this film, to be beautiful and elegant and... And I would absolutely do my hair like that if I had a good face for it. Um, but I don't. But that's that's how much this film has affected me. Like when I see snow, I think of birth. And when I put my scarf on, I do it the way Anna did. Like this is ridiculous. I sound absurd saying all of this. 
But this scene's actually important because she gets a letter that young Sean has sent her and he says not to marry Joseph. He says it in the letter. And so this little boy starts to enter this relationship. He starts to come between Anna and Joseph. And like I said at first, oh, it's, you know, everybody thinks it's funny. But as it continues, it becomes much more serious. It becomes a fantasy that I don't think Anna can resist of what this little boy is doing. And he he is involved in the fantasy. It's like they're entering this fantasy together, this delusion together. And of course, when you first see the film for the first time and you don't know what was in the contents of uh, Clara's box, then you're wondering the whole time, how does he know these things? How, how does he know this? How does he know who Sean is? How does he know she even has a dead husband? You know, all kinds of things. Um, it's just you you don't know and so that's part of i think of a fascinating aspect of the film the whole time you're watching it for the first time for the first time you don't know you're trying to put it together like how in the world could this kid know these things and so you yourself it's actually really brilliant because you yourself start to enter into the delusion and the fantasy with anna because you start to think, well, my God, there's no other way he could know these things unless he was shown. But then, of course, you're like, but I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in things like this. I don't. You know, personally, I'm not a spiritual person. I'm not a religious person. I am an atheist. But I'm someone who there is a part of me that longs for it to be true. Like, I've been watching Unsolved Mysteries a lot lately. You know, that show from the 80s and the 1990s, hosted by Robert Stack. Um, I, I obsessively watched that show when I was a child. Like, it creeped me out so badly. And the music was terrifying. But re-watching it now that I'm older, and I still get so scared watching it. Like, I'll watch it at night, and I'm like, Caitlin, why why are you watching this at night? Because it terrifies me, <laughs> but I still watch it. Um, a big part of the show is the stuff about the paranormal, is about psychics. And just today, I was watching an episode where a guy um, had a dream that his mom got attacked by somebody, and she then got attacked by somebody. So it was like this really weird thing that happened. So even though I don't believe in these things, I don't believe in ghosts, I don't believe in the paranormal, like a part of me wishes it was true, right? I mean, I think when you lose someone that you deeply love and you're not religious, it can be really hard. And it can be hard to think that there is nothing beyond death. It's hard to accept that you'll never see that person again. I totally understand why religion or spirituality is comforting to people. And I'll, I would never invalidate that or attack that. I understand why it's comforting. But it's just not something that I personally can believe. Um, but there's this part of me that wishes it was true. That you know wishes there were ghosts and wishes 
there was some kind of connection to it and um that's why I watch shows about mediums and psychics and I mean I don't watch them obsessively but sometimes I will I used to watch them years ago and I felt a little bit comforted by it but there's this other part of my brain and I, I would imagine it's sort of like Anna is in this moment where there's the rational part of her brain that's like there's no way this kid is the reincarnation of my dead husband and then there's this other part of her her the I guess the I don't know what you would call it just this other part of her that's like but I really wish it was because I miss him so much and I ache for him so much so there's, I think there's that two conflicting parts of Anna where she knows this can't be real. She articulates it to people. She says to people, I know this is crazy. I know it. And yet there is this other part of her that's like, I got to have this kid and we're going to go away together and this is going to happen. She absolutely believes it and gets lost in the fantasy of it. But that's because she's open to the fantasy of it or she's aching for it. She needs it to survive. She she needs to believe that he's not dead. She needs to believe that he's come back because she can't live without him. That's the thing that I guess, I don't know, that's the part of grief that, I don't know, I guess that's why it's so hard for me. It's like, how do you deal with not having this person anymore? How do you do that? <laughs> How do you put that in practice? How do you live with it day after day, year after year? There is such a pain about it for some of us, for me personally, that for all these years I've lived without my father. You know, Father's Day was just a few days ago. Um, and it's also interesting that I'm recording this episode on Nicole Kidman's birthday. Like, I didn't even plan this and this is something that I love about the podcast at times is that like little things happen like the week that I released the Jenna Rollins episode a woman under the influence it was her birthday that week it was like I didn't plan it that way I had no idea that Jenna's birthday was coming up that it was in June which is when I released the episode and I was like wow what a great coincidence and now I'm recording this episode about birth on Nicole Kidman's actual birthday. Like who? <laughs> it's crazy. Like I, I kind of like these little coincidences and I try to listen to them. I mean, I don't believe there's anything to them or anything like that, but it's like, oh, wow, that's neat. You know, like, I don't know. I just love stuff like that. That sort of happens sometimes with the podcast and, um, but um, Anna just, she, she knows that it's far-fetched, but at the same time, she's completely willing to believe it. You know, and I, and I, what, I mean, can I say I would be any different if somebody came to me and said, oh yeah, I'm your dead father. <laughs> I've come back and I know all these details about you and your life. I mean, a part of me would be willing to believe it that's what grief does to you it almost deranges it it's is deranged is that a word yeah I don't know it sounds weird to me as I'm saying it you feel deranged by it yeah I mean it's like you don't even feel yourself with grief you like you can miss somebody that terribly and that deeply where you don't even know who you are anymore 
because you don't know how to live without them. Like, you don't know. And like I said, Father's Day was just a few days ago. And um, I just was so numb. I, I usually cry a lot. I usually get really emotional, emotional, but because I've been going through a big move right now, um, I moved out of my apartment that I've lived in for a few years and I moved into a house and that's like an ongoing process that's really stressful and exhausting and overwhelming. And I, I didn't even have any energy left in my body to grieve. But Father's Day was hard. I mean, it was still hard, but I just felt so numb. And I'm just realizing that the grief or the way that I feel about my father's death, it's it's almost entered this place of, like, being unspeakable. Like, I can't put it into words anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of even trying to talk about it because it's just so deep and it's so embedded in me. And it's so devastating that there's just, words are futile. Words are like worthless. Words don't even touch what I feel inside about it. A big turning point in the film is when they go to find young Sean's father. And they tell him, you know, you have to talk to your son. He has to stop doing this. And that's what the father does. And then all of a sudden, Sean collapses. And young Sean does. The little boy just collapses. He's completely overcome. And Anna sees him collapse. And this is a turning point. Like, you can tell that when she sees him collapse, she she is taken aback by it. She's startled by it. And what follows is, like, a central scene of the film that shows Nicole's acting and it sort of shocks me like I know that she deserved the Oscar for the hours I totally agree but she really deserved the Oscar for this too like I don't even know who won in 2004 or two th- I guess she would have been nominated in 2005 I don't even know who won but she should have gotten some kind of recognition she should have gotten an award for what she did in this film. But she goes to the opera. They they end up getting there late. And they have to... Um, everybody has to stand up for them. And then Jonathan Glazer's camera just zeroes in on her face as the music is playing. And, you, and the audience just sort of melts away. And she's just there in the audience. And you can tell that... She doesn't even hear the music. The music isn't even, like, doesn't even matter. It's just this very long shot on her face. This long close-up. I don't even know how long it lasts, but it has to be several minutes. There are tears in her eyes, and you can tell that she is already, um, she's shaken by what she saw, and that is when she really starts to believe it where she starts to sink into the idea that this is Sean, this is her dead husband, and she has to find a way to to do this. Like, she's completely shaken by it. You can tell. Like, it's all over her face. And that is what makes the film. Kidman's acting makes the film because you have to feel that she believes it. That's what makes it work. That's what explains every action that she takes thereafter. 
is that she believes this kid is the reincarnation of her dead husband. And you don't believe it as an audience member. You may not believe it. You think it's outrageous or far-fetched or unbelievable. But to her, it's real. To her, she believes it. And that is the scene where you get it. That is the scene where you get it. And, um, yeah. And there are other scenes. And, um, she does meet young Sean. She meets him in the park. And he happens to meet her right where Sean died. Under that bridge. I still don't totally understand how he could have known that. And it makes you... that That's also, I think, a strength of the film. Is that it doesn't explain everything that the boy knows. There are obvious things that he would know from the letters. But there are other things that he wouldn't know. Like, how did he know that Sean died under the bridge? That obviously wouldn't be in Anna's love letters. Right? So there are some things in the film that are a bit mysterious. To some extent. And, um... So, there's something there, I think, that I don't know if the letters can explain everything he knows, but obviously the letters are his main source of information, right? Um, But he is believing in this fantasy, too. Both of them are, are believing it. And you just wonder, like, what if they could have just kept believing it? That's sort of an interesting idea, isn't it? What if you could just both get lost in a delusion? And but that's what they're doing. They're both getting they're both losing themselves in it. He's losing himself in pretending to be Sean. And she's losing herself in in the lie that her dead husband has come back to life through through someone else. But how many of us would not believe it how many of us would possibly believe it and maybe do things that we wouldn't think we would ever do and that's what happens to Anna you know she does things that in normal life she would never do you know and there's different scenes where her family Anna's family interrogates the little boy they ask him things about Sean, and of course he answers them, and he answers some of them very correctly. He says, oh, well, this is the person that told you that there wasn't a Santa Claus, and we made love on this particular couch, and this is the desk where I sat at. And so it's almost like he's um, like a magician in a way, or he's like... um I don't know what another word would be for it. Like a con artist, right? That's sort of what he is in these scenes. He's making them believe that he is Sean and he's answering these questions. Um, And later on we find out it's because of those letters. But when you're watching it the first time, you're just amazed. You're like, well, how in the world did he know all of this, right? Um, I have to stop saying right. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, 
they grill him and grill him and they don't understand how he knows these things that they can't explain it but they're not ready to take the leap that Anna takes there's still something rational in their minds that's like oh well there's you know there's no way there's no way he is shown they they don't take that leap that she takes sort of that magical leap that that magical thinking I guess you could say and I'm not saying this perfectly matches the definition of magical thinking that Joan Didion was talking about. Um, but it's, it is this magical leap. It is like her willingness to believe something like this when the people around her are not falling for it in the same way. But she is so vulnerable. She's so susceptible to this. She's so desperate. I mean, it sort of reminds me of people who are grief-stricken and who go to mediums. And often, a lot of mediums are cons. They're doing cold readings. They're just throwing out all kinds of stuff and seeing what sticks. And they're reading your body language because I've read about this. This is how like obsessed I, I was for a while about mediums. Like, how do they know certain things? And I've read, you know, different things written by skeptics and how they've talked about how it's it's actually easier than you think. You know, you put out a lot of stuff. They read people's body language. Sometimes people give away things when they're talking to the medium. The medium will pick up on that. And um, so, so in their grief, they're very susceptible to it. They're very impressionable in that way. And I think Anna's grief, it, it sort of blinds her to what is in front of her. That she can't see it clearly. She can't see that it's a con. She can't see that it's a lie. That it's a fabrication. She can't see it. She's blind to it because of the grief and because of the love that she felt for Sean. And her aching for all of that to come back. Because haven't we all just had moments or days or whatever where we just thought I just want them to come through the door I just want them to come back and that doesn't just happen after one year but it still happens to me 12 years later you know where I just wish he'd walk through the door I just wish he would come back why is it not possible for him to come back and it's not and it's so painful I remember I remember after my father died in 2006 and I was still in school. I was in high school. I was a junior at the time in high school. And then I started my senior year in the fall, you know, several months after he had died. And I still remember being in the computer lab in the library. I had this moment where I was, I was just on the computer doing some kind of work. And I'll tell you, usually on my lunch break, um, you know, at lunchtime at school, I didn't have anybody to sit with because I was really lonely. I didn't have friends growing up. I didn't have friends as a teenager either. So I didn't have anybody to sit with at lunch. So I would skip the cafeteria because it was just too painful. It was just too painful to sit alone or to have mean people sitting around me or whatever. It was just too hard. So I would skip lunch. I wouldn't eat until I got home later after school. And during that lunch hour or half an hour, however long it lasts now, I don't know, in high school, I would go to the library where there was like a computer lab. I didn't have a computer at home because we didn't have a lot of money. 
And so I never had a computer until I was older, till I was about 20, 21. I, I finally had my own computer. So I would go in there and I usually would go to different um, websites about Sylvia Plath. <laughs> this is who I was as like a 15 year old. <laughs> This is why I had no friends, um, because I was reading poetry. I would go to a lot of poetry websites, because I really loved poetry, and I loved reading it, and there was, like, several sites about Sylvia Plath, and so I would read about her, and, because I was obsessed with her, and this, this was my life, y'all. It's still my life. I still love Sylvia Plath, and it's really crazy to be almost 29 years old, and then to be almost 30 you know the the I think she was 30 when she committed suicide it's really shocking to me to almost be that age and then to think about how when I was a teenager I was so obsessed with her but um so I would go to the computer lab and I just remember one time sitting at the computer and I just wished that he would walk into the library it was the most intense thing I'd felt in a long time and I just wished that he would come through the door and that all of it was just a dream that all of it was just this terrible terrible thing that I had just imagined and that my real life would be with him alive again I just wanted him to walk into the library and just take me in his arms and and for him to be alive again and I used to have terrible dreams of him coming back to life and being alive again and it was scary but it was scary I can't quite explain it it's like it's like he he knew he had been dead and then all of a sudden he was alive again they were terrible dreams but um so I think those of us who are grief stricken those of us who have been shattered I think there is maybe a susceptibility to these things that people go to mediums for the same reason and so I think Anna is just much more vulnerable to something like this, whereas her family is not. You know, they, they know that he's a charlatan. They know that it's a lie. They don't quite understand how it is a lie, but they know it is when they see it, you know. And there's another good scene where Anna goes to visit Clifford, who I think was Sean's brother. Clifford and Clara... Clara, who was Sean's lover. Clara is played by Anne Heche. I will be honest, I'm not a huge fan of Anne Heche. And for me, she's maybe a weak link in the film. I don't think she was the right actress for it. I just don't care for her. It's just a preference thing, you know. Um, but she is in the film and she plays Clara. And um, Anna is there to tell them about the boy, about young Sean. And this is a really great scene. It's another sort of mono, it's a monologue for Anna. And it's, and I think it's another close up too on, on Anna's face, on Nicole Kidman's face. And she talks about how she can't get Sean out of her system, just like I can't get this film out of my system. And she talks about how even 10 years later, it hasn't gotten any easier for her. And um, it's a stunning scene because so much is there in that scene her talking about how she is still so shattered after all these years and even though she's met joseph and she loves him i know she loves joseph and he is he's been patient and kind and understanding about 
everything. And um, she still just, she can't move on. You know, even though she's engaged to Joseph. And it took her many years to say yes to him and to get engaged. That was a hard step for her. She, you can tell it's so easy for her to get pulled right back into the past. And and th- that's what this child does. This child, to to this boy, this is like a fantasy or this is a game or or something. But to Anna, this is profoundly destabilizing. This is frightening what this does to Anna. How out of control she becomes. How she is not in her right mind at times. How she does things that in her normal life... She would never do this. This child completely disrupts and and breaks apart her life. I mean, honestly, he wreaks so much havoc. And there is so much carnage left behind by what this child does. But it's totally believable that a kid would do this. And they don't understand the repercussions and the consequences. This is really a child playing in an adult world and not understanding the rules of the game and not understanding what they are doing and the damage that they are doing because it is truly damaging Anna. And she says in this scene to Clifford and Clara, she's explaining the situation to them and she says that she knows she sounds insane that this kid is shown and she says she doesn't believe it you know she she knows rationally that she shouldn't believe it but she believes it she says she doesn't but i think she does i think she's hiding from the truth that she absolutely believes it and she wants clifford to come and talk to to the young shown and because uh, she doesn't want to fall in love with Sean again. She's trying. I don't know if she's trying. She's never been free of Sean. She is completely imprisoned by it. She's completely burdened by it. And she cannot free herself from this man. She just can't. And that's what grief does to a certain extent. It's like, I don't know if you ever feel free. You know, I don't know if you ever feel free from, from the ghost, from the haunting, you know, like you never feel free of it. It's it's just always there. And when I say this film is risky, this is what I mean in the next few scenes, because Anna picks Sean up from school. The mother allows this. The Sean's young Sean's mother is not involved in in the film a whole lot, but I get the sense that she's intimidated by these very wealthy people that have an interest in her son, and um, so Anna picks him up. They go and have ice cream, and she starts to get very inappropriate with this child. And this is also partly why the film became controversial and unfortunately I think the controversy of the film overshadowed it or it made the film seem dirty or tawdry or illicit and that's not what it is at all you know 
Um, and she talks about, she asks young Sean, she asks, asks this little boy, you know, how are you going to fulfill my needs? And she obviously means her sexual needs. And um, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. And she takes him home. Um, and he stays over for the night. And um, they get in the bathtub together. The little boy gets in the bathtub with Anna. This was the big controversy of the film that er that people were talking about is, oh my God, Nicole Kidman's naked in the bathtub with this little boy. But actually, the scene is very tame. The scene is, you don't see anything. And from what I've read, they were covered up and the scenes were shot at different times. That's what I think they, I don't know where they said that. Was that Charlie Rose? That might have been something else. Um, they they were covered, you know. It, it looks a particular way, but that's not what it really is. And, that, and it was shot separately, and they were fully covered, and nothing wrong was done. You know, there was nothing, um, there was no violation that took place, you know. They were not really naked in the tub together. You know, this this is a film, it, it makes things look a certain way, but that's not how they actually were. Um, and there is a scene where... Anna and the little boy kiss but it's like it's a pure kiss it's not like it's no it, it doesn't go into that territory it's like a, it's like a parent and child kissing it's it's not on that level at all um these scenes though are crucial and I will I will argue for these scenes and some of you listening may disagree with me. I don't know if this is controversial, what I'm saying. But these scenes where they were responsibly filmed. And they are absolutely essential to the film and the narrative. Because they show how much she has lost touch with reality. They show the depths of her obsession and her willingness to do things that she would never do um, in normal life. Things that she would never allow to happen. So they're crucial in establishing her mental state. And what she's capable of and how far she will go with it. So with, without these scenes in the film, it's just not the same film. It's just not. Yeah. She is gradually and more and more just, it's like quicksand. And she is going under. She is drowning. She is so deep in this. Yeah. I mean, she is so deep in it. In the delusion of it. Um, the fantasy of it. That she can't even see straight. I mean, she fully believes in it. To the point where she's already starting to scheme. Um, and she tells Sean, the little boy Sean, young Sean, that she's already, you know, um, sort of planning and thinking about how her and, and him can run away together. 
how in 10 or 11 years he'll be the legal age and they can be together. This is how deep she is in the delusion of it. Um, she's already in her mind planning and thinking about how she can get control of this child and how they can have a life together. She is completely ready for it. She is completely scheming and planning for it. Um, she has lost touch with reality to a certain extent. And her willingness to do this is shocking. Yeah, it's really stunning how how she loses herself in it and gets so wrapped up in it. And I think around this point in the film, there is the big reveal. I mean, I talked about it earlier in the episode because I think it was important to go ahead and put it out there on the table. But we find out because um, Clara meets with young Sean. There's a few scenes between the two of them. And when you watch it the first time, you're like, what is going on between this kid? And because Clara is very sinister, she's a very menacing character in the film. And, um, and there is a scene where it gets revealed that they were Anna's love letters, um, unopened. And that's what she buried. And the little boy dug it up. And that's how he knows so much about Anna and her life. And so, and it also, this reveal punctures this image that Anna has of this perfect relationship that she had with Sean, that this was a great love. It wasn't a great love. He was cheating on her, you know? And, um, that whole, that whole image is punctured, you know? And, um... I don't know. I, I got to thinking about this as I was watching it. And I think maybe my one critique of the film, I don't have a lot of them, you know. The casting of Anne Hache feels kind of off to me. Although she does sort of have that menacing vibe about her in the film that sort of works. Um, I think maybe my one critique of the film is that we're given the answer. And I wonder if the film might have been a bit more mysterious or even ambiguous if we had never known how Sean knew the information. I mean, Glazer talked about how he didn't want it to be a paranormal film. He wasn't interested in making a paranormal film. So maybe to some extent he didn't even want that to be an option. That he wanted there to be an answer um, that was rational, that obviously this kid was not the reincarnation. He found these letters and there just happened to be some coincidences. Maybe like them meeting at the park. The little boy maybe just picked that park. And he maybe didn't even necessarily know that Sean had died under that bridge. And his name just happened to be Sean. Just like, you know, the man that died. So there are some coincidences there. But overall, it's a rational, straightforward explanation for why he had this information. And I wonder sometimes, though, if a, a more open-ended ending might have been more interesting. But I don't know if he could have done that. I don't know if the film would have worked the same way. But um, he, he wasn't interested in the paranormal aspect. He wasn't even um, thinking that that's how this kid... That, that it, he was, I don't think he was ever thinking that reincarnation was a viable 
real option for the film you know that it had to be explained in some way and of course um he has to tell anna because clara says i think clara's gonna reveal it you know if he doesn't and so he shows up her at her apartment again and he's in the bathtub because he got dirty he was climbing some trees and anna shows up and this is an important scene because she says that she has a this is when she talks about how they have a she has a plan for them they'll run away together you know he'll be older in a few years and they can be together and he breaks the spell and he says that he isn't shown and and it really is like a spell is broken it was it's almost like it was this enchantment it was almost like this spell or this witchcraft or something was done to her that completely changed her you know and made her into somebody different and i think that's what grief can do to us whether it's one year later or 10 years later when you're grieving you're grieving and for some people it's an ongoing thing and it's permanent it's forever and it does change you it just completely changes you and um what's hard about this scene for me is that he doesn't explain any of it he doesn't say oh well i found these letters that clara buried so he makes sure that anna will never be free of sean because if he had told her about the letters and he he had explained how he knew everything and she would have found out about the affair and her image of Sean would have been shattered obviously and this idea of who they were and the love that they had for each other because in a way I mean I know Kidman and Glazer think that it's a film about love about the love that she has for Sean, for her dead husband. And I would agree with that to a certain extent. But for me personally, it's more a film about grief, about the way grief can drive us out of our minds, you know, like literally just make us feel out of control of ourselves and not know how to live or cope or, or survive at times. But I I think, I don't know if it's about love at all. I think it's killing her. I think that love is killing her because I think that that love was a lie. I mean, the love she feels for Sean is not a lie. But it's based on lies. She doesn't know everything about him. She doesn't know that he was cheating on her. There's so much that she doesn't know because people around her have lied to her. And who knows, maybe some of her family members know that he was cheating with Clara. We don't know. But Clara's not going to tell her. Clara actually could have freed her, maybe, or liberated her from this fantasy, you know, this this perfect ideal love that she thinks she had with Sean. And think about it. If she can't be free of it, she can't be free of the perfection of it. She can never find love again because every love is going to be compared to what she felt for Sean and what she thought that Sean felt for her. But he didn't. That love is not what she thought it was. And it wasn't reciprocated in the way that she assumed. And so if they told her about it, if, if someone would tell her the actual truth, 
Maybe she could be free. Maybe there's a possibility for her to to move on, to be with Joseph, to be happy. You know, and she said that earlier in the in the film, I think maybe I don't know which scene it was. Maybe it was the one where she was talking to Clifford and Clara. She might have said that she she wanted peace. Um she wanted to be able to get married and and find some kind of peace for herself that she desperately wants that i think she i think a part of her is so obsessed with sean and so shattered by the death of sean you know that she can't live with it she can't survive but then another part of her is sort of trapped by it and imprisoned by it right I mean, that's what the grief does at times. But also this fantasy that she has about him that isn't true. That maybe if she knew the truth, she'd have a chance at freedom. She'd have a chance at another life. She'd have a chance at living again. But the way the film ends, with nobody telling her, and the little boy not telling her, then it's not even possible for her you know she never knows about the affair he he didn't love her the way that she thought but she'll never know that but when the little boy tells her you know he's not shown it's like a spell's broken and she can finally see clearly again and she goes back and she begs joseph to take her back because earlier in the film joseph had left he got really mad about everything he attacked the little boy and a lot of stuff happened and he left the apartment he went to live somewhere else and she she wants she says she wants to get married oh no this is when she says okay when she's begging for joseph to take her back this is when she says that she wants to have a good life and she wants to find peace so she didn't say it with clifford and clara um this is when she says that she just desperately wants to find some peace and and to be happy but I wonder for Anna if that's possible. And I wonder too, and this was a question that I asked at the beginning of of my review, can we ever let the dead go? I think the film asks that of us. Can we ever really let the dead go? Even when we say we've moved, we've moved on, that we've let go, that we've moved past it, have we really? You know, Anna might have thought that, that she had moved on. But as soon as this little boy came into her life and said these things, then she hadn't. She was so quickly, she could go into that fantasy world and believe it. Because she wanted to believe it. She desperately wanted to believe it. And I don't think that peace is possible for her. I think she is so um, shattered by Sean's death and so haunted by it and haunted by the life that I guess that she was robbed of when he died what they could have been together the life they could have had together you know you don't just lose a person of course that is the most painful agonizing part you lose that person but you lose everything you could have been with that person you lose she loses the children she could have had with him you know, she loses the life they could have had together. That's what you also lose in a person. You lose an entire future. You lose a world. 
maybe you lose the past too because they're not here anymore so the depths of her grief are agonizing and profound there is no peace for Anna even though Joseph takes her back and we find out that the little Sean the little boy does get some professional help that his life goes on so there's a little bit of an answer there for him because he obviously I think he definitely needed some kind of of help because he got so lost in the fantasy of it but at the same time children tend to do that right 10 year olds and we come to Anna and Joseph's wedding day and of course this is probably the scene that haunts me the most when I think about this film and I, this film is like in my bloodstream like I said it's in my DNA and talking about it has been really interesting and sort of a rev- revelatory at times and I really see the depths of my obsession with this film and because it just it strikes so many chords for me it's so essential to the way I see myself but also the way that I look at grief and think about grief and loss and the and just the way I see myself as a person in the world I feel that vulnerability and that fragility and that rawness and that Anna has you know but um I'll just I'll never forget it I'll never forget Anna in her wedding dress her white wedding dress and her veil and she just goes down to the beach and she's just standing in the water completely dazed she's completely unraveling I don't know if I've ever seen something so emotionally jarring um she just looks so lost like it just it stuns me every time I see the scene and of course Dayplaw's music is playing you don't even need words that's the thing about this film I don't even know how much dialogue's in it in that Charlie Rose interview I think Glazer said that there wasn't even that much dialogue really the the music communicates so much of the character in the film and in this final scene no words are necessary because Nicole is communicating so much as she has throughout the film she's communicating so much non-verbally so much through her facial expressions or her body movements um it's a wordless kind of acting it's a pure kind of acting where it's all through the body and the face and the eyes and you feel this sense that she has inhabited this character and that's what I said about Jenna Rollins and um, a woman under the influence I said that she dissolved the screen she dissolved the space between the viewer and the film the viewer and the character that you felt like you were watching real life that you felt like she was this person and that's how I feel with Nicole Kidman in this role as Anna is that this is some of her bravest acting I think and she said in that interview um, with Charlie Rose she said that she felt profoundly exposed um, 
at the end of at the end or just doing the film she felt very exposed and there is absolutely an emotional exposure in this film there is a nakedness to this performance where I feel like Nicole has just stripped back everything and is like just stripped her skin away and you just see the muscles and the sinews and and the tendon right I mean everything is stripped away and it's just this woman who has been destroyed by grief this woman who has been obliterated you know and by grief and by life and she cannot cope you know she cannot cope with this and what this little boy brought into her the way that he disrupted her and destabilized her and shattered her again it's almost like 10 years later it's almost like she's going through a second wave of grief it's like she's losing him again i just realized that as i and it seems so obvious she's mourning him again she lost him again because in her mind she had built up this whole life of her and this little boy running away together and her being with Sean again. And she loses that. She loses it and so she is grieving and mourning Sean all over again. And it just starts over again. And she's in it and she's drowning. This is a woman drowning absolutely drowning and that's sort of how I've always you know described myself as like this drowning woman you know this this person who's always just under the surface and can't make it to the surface and is just always drowning because of sorrow and grief and depression and all of those things and that's I I see so much of myself and Anna and this sort of this woman in the waves walking into the waves it's almost like I think if Joseph had not been there maybe she would have kept walking maybe she would have drowned herself maybe she would have killed herself but I fully understand that scene more now because I realize that she's she's grieving Sean all over again and she loses him for a second time because she thought that she had him again she thought that he had come back to life as improbable and impossible and outrageous as it is she thought that that was real to her it was completely real and the film makes you believe that it's real and I just, I, I have never identified with a character as deeply as I have with Anna, more than any other woman in, in cinema, in a film. Like, it hurts. This film emotionally and physically hurts me. That's why I can't watch it a lot. It's why it takes me years in between each viewing. It wounds me. It is the kind of film that wounds me because I see myself in Anna and I see my own anguish in her. And Joseph comes there and he gets her. He gets her out of that water and they walk down the beach and it's just over. And you, you have this sense that she will never recover from this. 
She will never recover from it. She is like glass that has just been completely shattered and broken. This is really a woman who has been destroyed by grief. And I, watching it all these years later, I felt completely gutted at the end of it. I felt just as gutted this time as I probably did the first time that I ever saw it. I just, yeah, I, this, I am Anna. I mean, so much of me is Anna. Like, like I said, this film is like the key to me, like the key to who I am and what I feel inside. I feel like that's what this film does. It articulates me. It it puts, it puts me in a film almost like, um, the music conveys a lot of what I feel too. Just everything about it. Like, I, I can't even put it into words anymore. But she's grieving him again. She's lost him a second time. And she cannot. She could barely survive the first time. That completely shattered her. And obliterated her. But you get to a second time. She has been so psychologically wounded by it. She has been so destabilized. I mean, she's been annihilated by this. Annihilated. That's the word to use. I always have this sense that she's not going to make it. That's the everything I've all that's what I've always felt about Anna is that she was not going to make it. That she was just going to sort of sleepwalk through life after that point that she could not be brought back that's the sense that I got about Anna of her out on that beach and those waves and the look on Nicole Kidman's face and what she did in that scene like I mean the symphony scene or or I don't know if they're at the opera the symphony that one is really powerful but god the ending for me that's like it guts me every single time I see it because I see so much of my pain and anguish and that sense of being lost and unraveling and all of it right in that scene, right in Nicole Kidman's body. And I don't know how she did this performance. She just stripped everything away. She cut it all away. She really showed her soul, I think. She completely entered the the body of this character. It is, to me, one of the greatest film acting performances. It doesn't get talked about a lot. I don't think it would be put in like the top ten acting performances. But it's in mine. I mean, it just, it just cuts right into me. I feel it so deeply. And even now, as I try to put it into words, I know that I'm failing. How can I communicate this? It's so interior. It's so inside me. It's so beyond words and language. But that's what that scene captures. There doesn't need to be any words in that scene. It's the music. It's what Nicole does with her face and her body. This is a woman who's been annihilated by grief. I, I truly believe that. A woman who cannot let go of the dead and a woman who is 
slowly dying because of it you know she this is a woman slowly dying from grief i think and i did want to end with that joan didion quote from the year of magical thinking because i think it's a good place to end and i think it's a good summation of anna's own struggle didion wrote quote i know why we try to keep the dead alive we try to keep them alive in order to keep them with us i also know that if we are to live ourselves there comes a point at which we must relinquish the dead let them go keep them dead unquote that's what anna can't do she cannot relinquish the dead she cannot let them be dead and she cannot accept that sean is dead and so she can't live she is a woman who cannot live she will always be in it it will always be raw and immediate and inescapable for her it will always be her prison she's almost constructed a prison out of this grief out of this love that she felt for sean but the love has turned into her undoing it has turned into a destructive force and of course that's what i see so strongly in in anna and what i see in myself this inability to let go of the dead and to live i can't do it i struggle to do it the way that anna does so i'll leave you here i think i've said everything i possibly can about this film and um what i wanted to convey above all else was my personal connection with it and my personal obsession with it and why it is such a such a deeply um powerful and resonant film for me and one that really defines me and defines my life so i'll stop here thanks so much for listening until next time keep watching great films Bye for now.